You may take a seat. So as we as we come to this to the end of this chapter in the book, or to the end of this book, the last chapter uh, of the book of Ruth, we we can already see quite a bit of the Lord's work uh, throughout the, the the book, and we can be encouraged. So right at the onset of this chapter, let me just emphasize two precious truths that we have considered uh, up until now. Firstly, the, that behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. The book of Ruth portrays this truth marvelously. This is a book that begins with sadness, hang, uh, famine, and death. And it ends with joy of, of marriage and birth. It begins with three burials, ends, uh, ends with a wedding. For the, the Christian, we know, we know that this book, that this episode that really happened, that was, that, is, that was lived by real people in a real Judean village all those years ago, we know as Christians that this is true of us as well. It is God who writes the last chapter of our lives that yes, a, a dark night of trial may be upon us for a season, but that that dark night of, of trial is ultimately transformed into a, a bright new morning of glorious hope. The Bible says that weeping may last for a night time, for the, that weeping may last for the whole night, but joy comes in the morning. And God still does this. What God did for Naomi, I, I do, I am persuaded that Naomi is the, the main uh, protagonist, the, the main emphasis or the main uh, turning uh, character. And I know character conveys a sense of fiction, not, but it is the, or the main person that is emphasized in this book. That God turned Naomi's fortunes around. That God turned what happened to her. And God still does the same today. He does the same in our lives. God turns valleys in, into, into, into mountains. And he turns uh, gray, despondent, troubling times into... Wonderful gardens lined with, with flowers. It is God who turns our weeping into, into gladness. It is him who does it even this day. You know the story of Jacob, don't you? Jacob said, all these things are against me. He thought as he looked at the, at the circumstances of his life, as he looked around, he thought that everything was lost, that, that God had turned his face against him, that he was under the punishing hand of God. All these things are against me. How often have you said this within yourself? Be honest. Are you saying it even today? Seems like everything is against me. Seems like everything is going wrong, all these things that have come upon me in this last week, in this last month, in this last year, in this, la in this last uh, t 
10, 20 years, everything seems to be against me. But Jacob was looking wrongly, wasn't he? Just like Naomi, after 10 years living in Moab, Naomi was looking at it on the wrong, with the wrong lenses. She wasn't looking at it as God intended it. And the second thing that we know as we come to chapter 4, as we have seen what has been happening, is that what is humanly impossible for God is, is, it, is, um, it, is possi- it is reality by his action. The book of Ruth reveals to us bitter, dark human impossibilities. As Naomi was looking at her situation, she, she saw nothing but, uh, but, but pain and despair for the rest of her life. Uh, um, a life of scraping by, uh, the, of scraping the, the bottom of the barrel. She saw nothing of goodness that might come out of it. From a human perspective, she, she, would be, she was, was certainly thinking that her future and her destiny was sealed, that she had no more joy to look forward to in her life. She had lost her husband. She had lost her sons. She, was, she had lost one of her daughters-in-law. She had nothing left. And yet, however, God reversed it. God showed her, showed her a way of hope. While she thought that God was busy working against her. You remember how she spoke at the end of chapter 1? She thought that God was at work against her. Actually, God was at work for her. And the Christian life is like that, isn't it? I think all of us, we realize that the Christian life is is not a, a straightforward path. As Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, used to say, there is crooks in our lot. And it was God that placed them there. Let's make no mistake about it. They don't happen by chance. They're not insignificant. They're not meaningless. There are things in our, in our pathway as Christians, curves and precipices and, and, and those sort of things that, that leave us Despairing at times, humanly speaking. It was John Bunyan, wasn't he, when he wrote The, the Pilgrim's Progress. I think he, he marvelously displayed this in his metaphor of the Christian life. The pilgrim, there, there were moments when he looked ahead and he could see nothing but narrow bridges, nothing but deep valleys and nothing but immense abysses. And perhaps that's how we feel today as Christians living in this world and in our particular circumstances. We feel like there's nothing. We're weak. We're discouraged. We even go so far as to moan as the Israelites did against God and say that God is against us at times. We all do it. To our shame, we all do it. However, 
The impossibilities for Naomi, the impossibilities for men are realities when God chooses to act. To act. They are possible to God. He continues to make the barren woman, as he did here to Naomi, to make the barren woman to be a mother of children. He continues to raise poor men and women from the dunghill of sin and wickedness and to sit them in the high places where princes and princesses stand. He is the same. What seems impossible is completely possible. It, it, is, it is completely possible to God. So as we come to chapter 4, there are three important sections that we will consider. Today we will consider the first. I've entitled it Arrangements. And it is for, from verse 1 uh, to verse 8, where God is, uh, or where arrangements are being made in the providence of God to, to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And then next week we'll look at the announcements. And, third, and the following week we'll finish by looking at the accomplishments, what came out of it. So, firstly, the arrangements for the redemption of Ruth. Boaz is the, the, takes center stage. I know I'm using language of fiction to, to refer to a, a true... Uh, uh, situation that happened but sometimes language is like that Boaz is that now the person who takes center stage in the, in the story for the first time it was initially uh, the family of Elimelech later on in chapter 2 is kind of Ruth that propels the, 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 the narrative for then chapter 3 again Ruth with a little bit of Boaz but in this first part it is Boaz that we are call to pay attention to to look at we see that Boaz is uh, we've already saw that Boaz is a wealthy godly man that he is legally qualified to be the, the 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 redeemer the rescuer of this family the Bo the Boaz has a already given abundant proof of his care and love for Ruth and Naomi in his uh, providence for 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 Ruth and Naomi and Ruth knew this. Ruth had already also formally asked Boaz for marriage uh, in the previous chapter. And he had said uh, that he would settle the matter, to wait, to, to, to wait on this situation. Because as we saw last week, there was this next of kin, this relative that is closer than, the, than Boaz. And he has primacy or he has the, the priority here. So Boaz shows us humanly or instructively, because scripture is instructive for us as well. Boaz shows us instructively these characteristics of, a, of a, a good man. First of all, Boaz is diligent. Verse 1, we read, don't we? We read in verse 1 that Boaz was there already in the morning as, as people started coming into the, into the, into the city, as, as the, the, the rush, hour rush hour period was coming, uh, beginning. Boaz was already there, sitting, waiting. I, I, I want to find this, this person, this closer relative. As soon as he comes out to do business, I want to meet him. Boaz was sitting there expecting to meet him. 
You see, Boaz was a determined, resolved man. He was diligent. He was in a hurry, in a sense, to act. He does not want to put off this pivotal, important decision for, uh, any longer. He is interested in, in, uh, in uh, getting rid of all the hang-ups, and he wants to, to get on with it. You see, we so often talk about haste being a, an evil thing, uh, about making decisions in, in, in haste being uh, sinful. And it is, don't get me wrong. Haste uh, and uh, unthoughtfulness is wrong. But on the other side, it is equally wrong to be undecisive, to, to not, not move. Indecision is another mistake that we can make. Lethargy, not to act or do. And here we see that Boaz, he is decisive. He wants to get to to go to do it, and he does. He commits, and he makes a decision. Indecision is a sin. Make no mistake. When you are indecisive, when you when you are just wait and see what what gonna, what's going to happen. When you know what is right. Indecisiveness is a decision by itself. You're choosing not to, to choose. You're, you're actually, I would say, choosing to fail. You're deciding not to decide. So the first thing we see with Boaz is that he is a diligent man. He is also committed to justice. In verse 1, we, we read that he, that he, was, that he, he goes to the, to the city gate, that he's there. And we need to talk about this city gate. Again, this is things that are foreign to us. What is this business of doing things by the city gate? I think most of us, as we read, we kind of have an inkling that the city gate was this important place in a town or in a city. That this city gate was a, a place of public interest, perhaps very much like in, uh, in, in the classical area, uh, in the classical era, uh, in ancient Greece, the, the town square, the marketplace was the agora, was the, the, the city center or the, the place of business. In, in the Judean culture and in the ancient Near Eastern culture in general around the Israel at this time, it was not in the city center, it was not in the markets. Actually, the markets were in the city gate. Business was conducted outside there in that, in that place. It was not only the place of business, it was the place of, of, of judicial review. It was the place where if there was uh, some kind of crime committed, it was at the city gate that, that people would meet, that the elders would dispense with justice. It was at the city gate that, that people would be judged. In a time where there, there existed no courts, buildings, it, the city gate was the court uh, place of the town or city. The gate is mentioned in connection in the scripture in connection with executions. You, you can check these these references up later, but in Deuteronomy 22:24, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of the of the tragedy of city gates that had no elders by it. The prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations 5, 14, he speaks of this great tragedy that came upon a city when the elders no longer sat in the gate. 
It's anarchy. In, in, in those days, to have no elders uh, sitting at the gate is a day of anarchy. There is no law. There is only lawlessness. So the importance of a gate to the city was vast. You know the stories, don't you? In, in the Old Testament, it was at the gate that the, 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 the people who were sick, who were poor, who, the beggars and the afflicted would meet. It's the place where you would beg. Even in the days of, uh, uh, in the book of Acts, we find this. So the gate, the city gate was important. And that's where Boaz meets. And that's where Boaz is doing his business because he wants to do it justly and he wants to do it openly. He wants to do it in a way that everyone will know what he's doing. He's not just seeking. That's what some commentators seem to, to want to, um, to imply. He's not just seeking this because, because uh, he ha has fallen in love with Ruth. He probably has. I think it is implied in the text that he has. But he's seeking this because he, he doesn't just want to, uh, to, to get Ruth. He wants to do the, the, the right thing. He wants to do the, the, the judicially appropriate thing. So he is someone, number two, who is committed to justice. Thirdly, as we go through this looking at Boaz, we see that he is someone who is prudent as well. And as you read from in verse 2, you find that he, he doesn't want to do this alone. But he asks ten men of the elders of the city. And he says to them, sit down here. He's being prudent. He wants everything to be done in the clear. No backroom deals for him. He wants everything to be clear as day, to be public and seen. He doesn't want to, to be uh, misunderstood. He wants this to be Binding, legally so. The elders, you might ask, who are these elders? These elders would be, the, in a sense, in that, in that more primitive society. Perhaps you might ask if we're, if, if we're not the primitive society with, with some of the things that we are doing in our day. But in that more primitive society, it was the elders that were kind of the, the judges and the jury and and many times the executioners as well. They were the legal and juridical, uh, uh, they have a legal and juridical function. And in, in many ways, uh, the, the elders at the city gate function as a, a kind of notary. Do you have that here in the UK? Uh, when you want to sign a, a contract or, uh, and you want to get it notarized, it's like, oh, we, this is as official as it can be. It's not just that me and you, we signed the contract. We went and we got notarized. Someone uh, witnessed it. So that's uh, very much what is happen uh, happening here. They, he, he wanted this legal, juridical, uh, notar notarized um, agreement. He wanted it to be valid and binding. If he wouldn't get his way, which I believe that Boaz wanted Ruth, uh, he wanted to be the one redeeming, but if he wouldn't get his way, he would get the, his way in the sense that Ruth and Naomi would be well taken care of by this other. I love the way that it, it expresses it here. Just as an aside, when he, 
the word here that is translated in uh, the New King James as friend. Literally, in a, you, it's Mr. So-and-so. It's, it, it's, it, it, he's not even blessed with having his name uh, written down, recorded uh, in Scripture. He's, he's Mr. So-and-so. That, that guy. Come over here, guy. It is, it is the, the sense that is conveyed in the Hebrew. So, he dealt prudently. Number four, he, dealt, he deals in this situation with integrity. You see Boaz in, number, in verse three and four, he does not withhold information from, uh, from those present. He does not hide the truth. Although he probably, will, uh, I would say there is this, and we will see that in the that in the in the in the next point. Although there is this sense where he he has an outcome in mind, he is he wants himself to be the one redeeming. He does not go about it in a in a surreptitious is that the word way? He doesn't go about it in a deceitful way, hiding his motivations, just. Bending a little bit the truth here and there, just so it fits his 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 goals. No, he goes and he says everything. He does not hide the truth. He, he does not hide the situation. He tells the other Mister So and So, this friend, this closer redeemer. He tells him that you that he is the one there, and he tells him what he should do. And if he does not do it, he will himself do it. He he is not he is behaving himself, which is unsurprising to us if we've been reading the Book of Ruth in the most morally uh, int integrous way. He is being. He has moral integrity, not only in how he behaved in, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, but even as we come to chapter 4, he is integral. He is a, a man of moral integrity. And number five, we find him to be a man of wisdom as well. Verse 5 and 6, we are told, aren't we, that he presents the situation with wisdom. Again, this is not uh, him trying to be deceitful, but he really wanted to, to emphasize this. And some commentators call it a master stroke. And I believe it, this is a master stroke of wisdom. He presented the matter in two stages. He put the rescue of Naomi's land first. You want this land? Of course he wanted the land. That's, the, that's what everyone wants. It, only then he revealed that with the land you would get Naomi and Ruth as well. That he would, need, he would have to betroth, to marry the Moabite widow Ruth, and to raise a descendant uh, and an heir to Malan and ultimately to Elimelech. Because the important thing here was the perpetuation of the, of the dead man's name, which the son who would receive, and later on the son would receive his lands. So, in a sense, he puts this other Mr. So-and-so, this friend, this closer relative, he puts him in a precarious situation. It is a costly thing that you're about to do. When Naomi and, and Ruth were not involved, he, he thought, well, this is a very good way of enhancing my, real, uh, my, 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 my estate of growing in riches and in proeminence and in fame in this, in this city. But then he realized that actually it would be a costly affair for him. 
that he would actually end up losing money in this process of redeeming Naomi's land. Because not only would he have to pay and buy the land, but the land is his, but then he would have to, to, to take care and to pay for the, the upkeep of having not only Naomi, Ruth, and probably children, only to, when he dies, all of it gets left to Elimelech's grandson. It doesn't, nothing goes to his children. So he could not accept this, uh, this offer, and he did not. So Boaz's strategy worked. The man gave up on rescuing and redeeming Naomi's land and marrying Ruth, clearing the way for Boaz to, to kind of go ahead with his, with his dream, with his plan, with what he wanted to do from the start. And in a sense, a redeemer... And we'll talk more about it in a minute. A redeemer needs to be someone who is interested in the helping of the needy. This man was wholly unqualified. This Mr. So-and-so was wholly unqualified to be uh, a redeemer. He was not interested in helping. He was not qualified to be a kinsman redeemer. Because the whole point of the kinsman redeemer role is to help the needy, to be there for the afflicted. He was only there for, the, for his own personal gain. When it involved a little bit of pain, he, he, he backed down. We'll look more uh, at this section uh, later, but lastly, Boaz has a zeal for doing things legally or for doing things with legality, and he follows the legal procedures here, verse 8 and 9, uh, uh, verse 7 to 9. We find that he's following the old tradition. I, w I would love to see this, the, the, the sandal being thrown. How is this? whole thing work because it's so foreign but he, respo he respected the laws and customs in force his wealth was not acquired uh, in, uh, in, uh, in an illegal way he, this land was not acquired in an illegal way again we're, we see Boaz a man of integrity a man that we should look up to uh, in our own day so you might be saying, where is the gospel here, pastor? Where is the gospel here? Where is the, the preaching uh, of the gospel that, uh, that goes with a, a gospel service? Well, again, it's Boaz. Isn't Boaz a type of Christ that points us to, to, this, to, the, to the one who was to come? Not to David, or yes, to David, but then to David's greater son. But I find it interesting. I'm not sure if I'm going to be stretching the, the, the meaning of the text here a little bit. But I find it interesting that in this passage we're presented with two redeemers. We're presented with one redeemer. One way of being redeemed. That is wholly and completely unqualified. And we're presented with another redeemer. That is just what Ruth and Naomi needed. And it makes me think. It makes me think of, 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 the, of the way that the law is unable to save man. Yes, it's there. And in, in paper, it seems like it would function. That man, by, by, by the works of the law, could perhaps attain favor with God. But the law is not there, is there, for that. The law is not there to, 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 to bring men closer to God. The law is just there to emphasize the need for a proper, willing redeemer. 
And that's what we see in Boaz. And that's what's so beautiful in, in Boaz that points us to Christ. All of these, uh, these elements, all of these characteristics, they point us to the greater Savior, to the greater Redeemer that is our Lord Jesus Christ. They point us to the value, don't they? They point us to the value that the Redeemer has placed on our lives. Brothers and sisters, I'll say this, and I know this is usually in the, the wealth, uh, health and wealth prosperity gospel, that things like this is said, are said, and because of their excesses, we kind of shy away from saying the, these kind of things in our circles, because we don't want to be mistaken and confused with them. But brothers and sisters, the Lord has placed a huge value on your life. And then the representation of that value is the price that was paid for it. And we know it's not because we are better. It's not because we deserve or earn that value. But it is a huge value. And when you look at how Boaz loved Ruth to this point, to this costly gift, to this costly redemption, we, we, can, but, we cannot but look at the cost of our redemption and say, how much has the Lord loved me? How much has the Lord... Love me. What value? It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your family situation, your culture, your, your possessions. It doesn't matter. If you are Christ, you are, you are loved and he has put a great value in you. Ruth was a Moabite Gentile widow. She was a foreigner, she was poor, she was destitute. And Boaz loved her. Well, God loved her. God, however, provided for her not only a family and riches, God provided that her name would be perpetuated, making her the, the mother of a blessed offspring. So you see, you find in the character of Boaz, the character of our Redeemer, we find in the actions of Boaz, the actions of our Redeemer. Boaz was willing. Boaz was, was able. And so is Christ. Christ was willing at a great cost to save us, to agree to fulfill the will of God in providing for our salvation. Boaz did all that he did publicly, with witnesses, in a way that no man would, would be able to doubt that he had done this. No backroom deals. And the same thing is true of our Lord. He did not die on the cross in some secluded place away from the public eye. He did not live his life in this world in the way that only those of a, 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 a very well uh, kept secret, uh, elite, secret society. No, it was all public. His life was public. His death was public. His burial was public. And the empty tomb was public for all to see so that no one would doubt. He was not lived, a life lived in the shadows. It was a life lived in the eyes of everyone who, who had eyes to see as we read through these verses, we see the worthiness, the, the suitability of Boaz on and on in, 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 the, 
in the whole of the book of Ruth. We see the unsuitability, actually, of, of this other redeemer. And again, as I said, I, I find that that is so uh, analogous with the law and with grace. We see the unsuitability, unsuitability of the law to save. The law is not concerned. The law is not concerned about, uh, uh, is not there to, to point us in the way of salvation. The law is not there to... to um, to, uh, to further us in that sense. The law is there to shine a light on our need for, the, for salvation, on our need for the Savior, for a Redeemer that is capable, that is able. The law is unable. This friend, so, Mr. So-and-so, is unable, but Boaz is able and Christ is able. Grace can do it. For what the law could not do, Paul says to the Romans, in what he was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. And we see the price, don't we? We see the price of the redemption that Boaz paid for the redemption of Naomi's properties, and we see the price that was paid in our own in the, in the spiritual realm for the redemption of the people of God. And we see parallels. We see parallels in all of this. Boaz was willing to endure the cost and the responsibility of marrying Ruth. He was not in it for, for the prophet. He knew that it would be a costly affair, but yet he did it and did it with joy. For the joy that was set before him, he did it because he wanted to marry Ruth. He wanted to marry this Moabite woman that had captured his heart. Didn't Jesus understand the responsibilities and the costs of saving us for the joy that was set before him? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, as opposed to Mr. So-and-so, let me use that name again, the, the, the closer relative. But the closer relative only wanted a partial redemption. He only wanted the good bit. He only wanted to save a little bit what it was interesting to him. But here is Christ, he sa Boaz, he saves everything. And not, in, in Christ, he's not interested in a partial re redemption. He is full redemption beginning to end, so that he is able to save to the uttermost, to redeem to the uttermost, as the author of Hebrews says. He fully satisfied the righteous demands of the law on our behalf. And he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice and pay the, the ultimate cost on that Calvary's tree, he was not concerned for his physical well-being, like Mr. So-and-so. Christ was not concerned about his inheritance, in that sense, personal. He was concerned about the inheritance that would come out of redeeming a great, people, uh, a great number of people for his kingdom. So there are many today, aren't there? There are many today who, who find this 
redemption. There are many who have found, we have found. The question is, have you found this redemption in, the, in Christ? Have you found his love? Have you heard the voice of Jesus softly pleading with your heart? Have you seen in the life of Boaz something that points us to, to the one that Boaz was meant to point us towards? There are many today. There are many today that behave a little bit like Mr. So-and-so. Like this uh, in verse 6, like this closer relative. They behave like him they, in that they, they only want the, the good bits. They, they treat Christianity and they treat being a religious person, they treat being a Christian as Mr. So-and-so. Well, I'll take what I want, but I won't take everything. Oh, yes, give me grace, but don't give me holiness. That thing that sounds so... No, I, I, I want it my way, or I don't want it at all. Don't be like Mr. So-and-so. Take the whole deal. Embrace the Savior for all that he has to offer, and you will not regret it. Let me finish with quoting Matthew Henry uh, in, verse, in his sermon on this passage. In verse, when he came to verse 6, he said this. This makes many shy of the great redemption. They are not willing to espouse religion. They have heard well of it. They have nothing to say against it. They will give it their good word, but at the same time, they will give their good word with it. They are willing to part with it and cannot be bound to it for fear of marrying their own inheritance in this world. Mr. So-and-so was unwilling to redeem and to do what is, was right for him because he wanted his inheritance in this world to be preserved. How many of us do that today? Matthew Henry finishes and says, Heaven they could be glad of, but holiness they can dispense with. It will not agree with the lusts they have already espoused, and therefore let who will purchase heaven at that rate do it, but they cannot. May we be... May we not be like Mr. So-and-so, like this closer relative. May we be willing to purchase heaven at the rate that was set for us, embracing Christ by faith and living for him.